1 John chapter 3. I would encourage you, uh, just regarding Israel, just the, the last thought, uh, be praying this week. Um, we have a lot of answers within the scriptures in regards to life and death and hope and, and all those things. And so you never know how God might uh, even use you this week, as this is, this is obviously worldwide news. And then, and then be sure to come out on Sunday next week as Pastor Jack will address these things further. Uh, but 1 John chapter 3, we're looking at a message this afternoon entitled, Labor of Love. We're going to be in verses 16 through 24, which is just an awesome jam-packed portion of scripture. Now, I'm sure this phrase, labor of love, uh, you've all heard before and maybe even have used within your own uh, vernacular. But for me, I think of the labor of love. When I think of that, I think of the labor of love that goes into making tamales. Uh, I came to realize this when I married into my wife's family and witness the days of preparation that go into the making of tamales. You know, when before I just ate them and they're delicious. But uh, when you see the labor of love, you see the preparation to the chilies that become the sauce. You see the, the cooking and the shredding of the meat and the actual process of the spreading and folding. It is without a doubt a labor of love. Of course, when I first started making them, I was put on the tedious task of uh, drawing the ohas. Now, if you were like me, I didn't know what that was, and they, I found that they are the corn husks, and they, it's important that they're dry so that it sticks and all, all the whole thing, but it's a labor of love. It's not something you just stick in the microwave. It's something that takes time and effort, and if you don't have love, you're going you're gonna to quit halfway through. Or maybe you've seen a mom, or maybe you are a mom, who finished washing, folding, and putting away every single piece of your family's clothing. You would say, we would say, I would say, it's a labor of love. Or maybe after a husband finishes a DIY project that always takes longer than expected, and about 25 trips back and forth to Home Depot, we'd be safe to say it's a labor of love. And you see, biblically speaking, by its very nature, love is laborious. True biblical love labors. It's not just an emotion or a feeling. Genuine love works, and it works hard. And this is exactly what we find when we look to the one who the Bible says is love. That is God himself. You see, God doesn't just have love, he is love. What does that tell us? It tells us that he's the source of it. And so if we want it and we want to know what it is, we must go to him. And as we study the scriptures, we find very quickly in the nature of God that his love labors. God does not just say he loves us. No, his love is put into action. And it's the action of Jesus Christ coming into the world to die for us. Now, the Bible has a lot to say on the topic of love. We, of course, all know the famous chapter of love, right? 1 Corinthians 13, love suffers long and is kind. Love does not envy. And in that chapter, we don't find so much of a definition of love, but a description of love, of what it does and what it doesn't do. And in light of our topic today, this description of love is compelling in the fact that love is not passive. It is active. It doesn't sit by idle, but gets up and gets in the game. 
Now, while 1 Corinthians 13 is the chapter of love that we know often quoted at weddings, really the whole book of 1 John should be known as the letter of love. I mean, after all, it was written by the disciple whom Jesus loved, as John so proudly described himself in the gospel of Count. But that's really how John felt, right? John writes himself the disciple whom Jesus loved. But he saw himself as the apple of his eye, as, as, this, uh, as this one who was loved. And the love of God was not just something that John knew intellectually, but something he experienced practically. So much so that within the gospel of John, the 21 chapter gospel narrative, he uses the word love 57 times in 21 chapters. But in the, in the epistle of John, what we're studying today, he uses the word love 46 times over just five chapters. That's a whole lot of love. Now, in addition to this being the letter of love, there's a reoccurring theme, chapter by chapter, to know God and to know that you have the eternal life that he's provided to those who believe. You can note down 1 John 5.13. This is just to bring some context since we're just jumping in kind of mid-chapter. This is the goal of the entire book of 1 John. These things I have written to you, always very helpful when an author puts something like that in. These things I've written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life and that you may continue to believe in the name of the Son of God. John uses the word know in some form 23 times throughout the five chapter letter. And this is his goal. That you, that I, that his readers would truly know the eternal life that has been given to us because of his great love. And so today, within our passage, under this theme of the labor of love, we're gonna see the display of love, the assurance of love, and the obedience of love. And so with that, let's go ahead and stand for the reading of God's word. We will uh, read it. I'll read it to you. You can just have your Bible in hand. If you don't happen to have a Bible, I'll be reading out the New King James Version, of course, and we will uh, have it on the screens for you as well. So I'm going to read from verse 16, and I'll finish the chapter. So I'll go all the way down to verse 24. I'd encourage you to follow along. The Bible says this, By this we know love, because he laid down his life for us. And we also ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. But whoever has this world's goods and sees his brother in need and shuts up his heart from him, how does the love of God abide in him? My little children, let us not love in word or in tongue, but in deed and in truth. And by this we know that we are of the truth and shall assure our hearts before him. For if our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart and knows all things. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence toward God. And whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do those things that are pleasing in his sight. And this is his commandment, that we should believe on the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another as he gave us commandment. Now he who keeps his commandments abides in him and he in him. And by this we know that he abides in us by the spirit whom he has given us. Let's pray together. Father God, we ask as we study your word that you would 
open up the scriptures, that it would burn within our hearts and it would not stay in these chairs. But as we leave this place, we ask that you'd help us to be doers of the word that we hear this day. And we pray this in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. Amen. You may be seated. Well, as mentioned, we're first going to look at the display of love. If you're taking notes today, and I encourage you to, we find in verses 16 through 18, what we just read, the first and beginning portion, we find that love has a display. And it's here that John describes the basis for how we, as followers of Christ, know what love is in the first place, how we know what it is and what it's like. And listen, the best way to know love is to look to the cross. There's no greater display of love than Jesus laying down his life for us. And this is, in fact, exactly what Jesus said during that last night with his disciples before his death in that upper room. John 15, 13, under this display of love, we see he says, greater love has no one than this than to lay down one's life for his friends. This was, of course, uh, not only a reference to what he was about to do, but it's a principle. It's a principle in the fact that love lays down. Love willingly gives. Love, according to the biblical definition, is sacrificial. But this fact that Jesus laid down his life for us, the fact that that is the greatest display of love, is not just a fact for us to know, but it is a reality for us to experience. This word know that's used in verse 16, it's the Greek word genosko. It does not just mean to know up here, it means to know experientially. It means to come to know by personal experience. This is not just to look at the menu and know what they have, It is to order the meal and to dig in. This is not just to see a picture of the Grand Canyon, but to stand at the edge overlooking the breathtaking sight. It's more than knowledge. It's to experience. This Greek word is used in the present tense. Now what that tells us is that this isn't something to merely acknowledge in the past, but experience in the present day by day, but never quite coming to the end of it. Paul put it like this in his prayer for the Ephesians at the end of chapter three. Ephesians 3, 18 through 19, Paul says, this is his prayer for them, that they may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the width and length and depth and height, four-dimensional, verse 19, to know the love of Christ which passes knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now, Paul's prayer is that they would begin to comprehend the full dimension of this love that, notice, passes knowledge. What an interesting statement. How do you know something that passes knowledge? Because it starts with a knowledge, but it certainly doesn't end there. And every day, the believer is to press in to the indescribable love of God. And in fact... That's exactly what we'll be doing in eternity because it's going to take all eternity to experience the fullness of who God is and his great love for us. 
And John says, we know this love because he laid down his life for us. And it was Jesus who laid it down. The Bible says that it was for the joy that was set before him that he endured the cross. Jesus didn't get himself killed as some suppose. But we know that he laid down his life willingly. And in fact, it was all part of the plan of redemption since before time began. Revelation 13.8 says, All who dwell on the earth will worship him whose names have not been written in the book of life of the Lamb, notice, slain from the foundation of the world. What does this tell us? What Jesus did on the cross was not a last-ditch effort, but rather intentionally purposed by the very hand of God before the beginning of time. Jesus knew what was coming, and that's why in the garden he had the time he did. His life was not taken from him, but willingly given up for our benefit. This is not to be overlooked. Jesus laid down his life. He was really clear on this in his teaching on the good shepherd and the sheep. John 10, verse 15, and then verse 17 and 18. Notice the repetition of what Jesus says. When the Bible repeats something, and especially more than twice, you want to take notice. Jesus says, as the Father knows me, even so I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. Verse 17, therefore my Father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of myself. I have the power to lay it down, and I have the power to take it up again. This command I receive from my Father, it was Jesus who gave up his spirit, and it would be Jesus who would take it up again. You see, it is the cross of Christ that is the greatest evidence of his love for us, and and then what should become the greatest motivation for our love for others. You see, Jesus' love was not all talk. He put himself on the cross, Romans 5.8 says, but God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. This idea of demonstration is the idea that he provided the evidence for. He did not just say, I love you. He showed it. And listen, he died for us, not because of us, in the sense of we didn't show something that was so lovable that he's like, I have to go and and die for them. No, it's his love. It's not our lovableness. And, And oftentimes this is where we get things wrong. The reason we refuse to love someone is because they don't seem lovable to us. There's something about them that we don't like and so we think we don't love them. Yet Jesus looked at us, saw nothing special, Nothing about us that was impressive, but he died for us because of his love for us, not because of anything he saw in us. And this is the the great truth. And this translates then into our action. And so this is what the Bible says. Look at the end of verse 16. And we also ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. Listen, because his love was demonstrated toward us, so our love must be demonstrated toward others. This word ought, it's the idea of obligation or duty. It is the reasonable response. 
It's actually the, the logical response. Because in light of what he's done, we ought to do the same. Jesus had this right when he said, John 13, 14, he said, if I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought, same word, to wash one another's feet. The logic makes sense. Jesus, who's greater than us, did something for us. And so we're not greater than anybody else. And so we also ought to do the same. And then in 1 John 4, 11, beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Remember, genuine love labors. And if you and I have experienced the sacrificial love of God, then that love will not stay contained in us, but it will, if it's in us, it will begin to come out. But let's say you see in your life a real lack of love for others. Don't think that the solution to the problem Step, don't think that step one is just determining to be more loving. You, will, you won't even get out of the parking lot. Step one, according to John, is to focus in and meditate on the cross because the motivation starts with Jesus. It is ultimately his love for us that compels us to live for him and love others. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 14 through 15 says, for the love of Christ compels us because we judge thus that if one died for all, then all died. And he died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and rose again. I love this concept. It is the love of God that compels us. It is what constrains us that for the believer who's experienced the love of God, love will begin to come out. It is the fruit of the Spirit. And so in verse 16, John sets the bar. And the bar is high. It is sacrificial. It is laying down your life. But in verse 17, he gets a bit more practical. And he gives a scenario. Look at verse 17. This is something that John loves to do in his writing. It's a compelling way to make it practical and applicable. He gives a situation, a scenario. Verse 17, but whoever has this world's goods and sees his brother in need and shuts up his heart from him, how does the love of God abide in him? I don't know if you caught it, but during the announcement, Jonathan, had no idea what I'm teaching today, uh, quoted that very verse and, and, and he gave even a way of application. But let's walk through this scenario for a moment. John focuses on the person who's got the goods. This is someone who isn't necessarily rich, but the contrast is this. It's someone who has, who sees someone who does not have. He uses the word goods. That word goods, it's uh, financial means. This is the word that we find when it says the widow gave out of her livelihood, the might. Or when the woman with the flow of blood for 12 years spent all she had from her livelihood, her goods for those physicians. Or how the prodigal son spent the portion of his dad's livelihood. And this person who has sees not just anyone, but specifically a brother in need. Not a brother by blood necessarily, but within the family of God. And we're told this person who has sees a person who does not have and is in need, 
and chooses to shut up his heart to this brother. Now, this word shuts up, it's the word to close. It's the same thing that we find. Remember in Matthew 6, 6, when Jesus says, when you pray, go into your room, and when you have shut your door, that's the same word. And what it's saying, to shut your heart to someone, it's not talking about a physical heart, but one's ability to be compassionate. It's that you shut the door on the person in need. And John just ends with a rather simple rhetorical question. If this is the scenario that you and I find ourselves in, how does the love of God abide in him? And I like to make it personal. How does the love of God abide in me, if that's me? You see, to say you have received God's love, but refuse to be a vessel in which that love flows through in the most basic of ways may be evidence that you've never received his love in the first place. Maybe his love has been something you've recognized intellectually, but never received experientially. It's a hard truth. It's a convicting truth. James chapter 2, verse 14 and 17 describes for us that faith without works is dead. You've heard that before, right? Why well, submit to you today, not only is faith without works dead, but love without works is dead. And of course, many times faith and love go hand in hand. James 2, we know this one. What does it profit? What's the point, my brethren? If someone says he has faith but does not have works, can faith save him? Then he gives a scenario similar to John. If a brother or sister is naked, destitute of daily food, need, and one of you says to them, oh, depart in peace, be warmed and filled, but you do not give them the things which are needed for the body, what's the point? What is a prophet? Thus also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. See, clearly the more difficult action to take would be to give your life for someone. That is the bar that Jesus set, which means anything below that is our responsibility. It's a much lesser demand to uh, give a meal to someone in need or whatever it might be. Yet you and I, because of our sin nature, can often have the heroic act of giving up your life for another as something, yes, I would do that. But then when it comes to the practical thought of helping a brother in need, it's much less flashy. See, this love that we have is not just to be in theory. If we say, I'd give my life, then everything else is up for grabs. It should be real and practical. And this is kind of where John takes us. He, he kind of culminates this thought in verse 18. When he gets a little uh, endearing, by this time, John is old. Uh, he's really old. He's at the end of his life, many believe. And when he writes, he, he, he often will refer to his readers as my little children. And it's, it's not a term of uh, belittling, but it's a term of endearment. Notice verse 18. He says, my little children. My, my loved ones, let us not love in word or in tongue, but in deed and in truth. Now we have a contrast, right? Word and tongue. This is communication and speech. Love involves more than just saying, I love you. To love in tongue only is to love insincerely. Where deed and truth, it's an action. And remember, love labors. To love in truth is to love that which conforms with reality, meaning it's easy to say something, 
more difficult to do it. You see, the Christian should be the first one to put their money where their mouth is. You know, have you ever heard the saying, talk is cheap? It's true. It's easy to say something, but love is expensive. It's costly. We must not just talk the talk, but we must walk the walk. You know what they call someone in Texas who's all talk and no action? They say that he is all hat and no cattle. And I think that's good. I've never been to Texas, but I hope that wouldn't be said of me. You know, Billy Graham always said that if you give a man, uh, uh, if you give him a man's checkbook, he would tell you what kind of man he is. Now you could kind of date that quote, you know, now it'd be bank information or statements, but how true it is. Do we say we love or do we show love? You see, there's no room for the gray area here and I love it. Because I don't know about you, church, but I need this. I need the reminder. I need to be looking at God's love and seeing my own life. And is it all talk or is there, is there walk? You know, Luke chapter 10, Jesus speaks with some religious lawyers who knew, who he knew were all talk and no walk. Luke 10 records that they come to him, these religious lawyers, and they ask him, oh, Jesus, to test him, what shall we do to inherit eternal life? And I love Jesus' response. He says, well, what does the Bible say? What does the scripture say? Or your interpretation of it. And they respond pretty good. They say, well, love the Lord your God and then love your neighbor as yourself. And so Jesus responds and says, yep, all right, go and do that. And they say, wait, 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 Jesus, um, who exactly is my neighbor? And this is the setting, of course, where the parable of the Good Samaritan comes in. And hopefully you can recall the story. It was a priest and the Levite who professed to not only know God, but follow the law of God, and yet they didn't follow through in their actions. But the least likely, the Samaritan helps the man who was robbed and left for dead. And it was costly. It was inconvenient. And it was long-term. Remember what he said to the innkeeper? He said, here's two denarius, day's wage, and you take care of him. And when I come back, I'll, you put on my tab. I'll take care of it. You see, the lawyer wanted to talk about this abstract concept of really who is my neighbor? And you know who Jesus' focus is on? The one, the one man in need who saw something and did something about it. Jesus' definition of neighbor is this, anyone who you see in need and whose need you are able to meet. Who's our neighbor? It's not the person who lives on the right and left. Who is God gonna put in your sights today that has a need? We must not only talk abstractly about how we love people. Who has God put in your sights today and how can you love them? How can you not walk on the other side but come close and give them your life? If you're willing to die for them, the question would be, are you willing to live for them? Secondly, we find the assurance of love. The assurance of love, verses 19 through 21. The first part, he focuses on that display, how love is, is to be something that's demonstrated. And it is that displayed love in our lives that we can really experience the assurance of love. Now, this assurance, though, is only able to come to those who live out the love they received. John says, it is by this displayed love, notice what he says, that we can then know we are of the truth. It's connected, okay? Verse 19 is not disconnected from verse 18. 
And by this, by living out love, we know that we are of the truth and shall assure hearts before him. This love for one another is the surest sign of someone who's really been born again. Remember what Jesus said? You will know them by their... And honestly, we will know ourselves by our fruit. Love is the Christian's trademark, right? John 13, 35, he says, by this all will know, and that all is all inclusive. I think that includes us too. All will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. This is the Christian's trademark. But now you and I must not make the common mistake thinking that this work of love that's supposed to come out from us is how we get saved or how we keep our salvation. It's none of those. It is the evidence that we really are saved. I want you to write this down. Never mistake the fruit for the root, okay? Never mistake the fruit for the root. What am I talking about? Listen, the fruit of love can only come into someone's life as they've put their faith and trust in Christ as Savior. That's the root. And what is going to come out of that connection with and in Jesus is going to come fruit. This is what Jesus talked about when talking about the vine and the branches. John 15. We know that it's only from a connection to Jesus can our life bear fruit. But it comes from the proper root. John 15, 5 and verse 8. Jesus says, I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit. For without me you can do nothing. By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit, so you will be my disciples. Listen, Jesus is not talking about produce here. He's talking about love. Because that is the primary fruit of the Holy Spirit, is it not? Galatians 5.22, the fruit of the Spirit is love. And listen, when God puts his love in us, it will come out from us because God's love cannot be contained. But the topic here in our text today is not for other people to know that we are his, but for us to know. Remember the purpose of the entire letter of John? I shared it with you earlier. That you may know that you have eternal life and that you may continue. But we have a part to play in this. The Bible says that we have a part that we shall assure our hearts. You can note it down, this word assure, verse 19, it means to persuade and convince, uh, to be certain. And then... In addition to that, to assure a heart, it's not talking about one's physical heart. This word, it's, of course, the Greek word cardia, where we can understand where we get the idea of uh, cardiology and, and, and those kind of things. But in many contexts, this is referring to the conscience, one inner, inner, one's inner person. There you go. And you know, our hearts, our conscience can be a fickle thing. And so you and I have a duty to take the word of God and what he's done in our life, and we must remind ourselves that we are his and he is ours. This is something that David often did. You find in the Old Testament, the book of Samuel, that he'll be in some kind of a, you know, a crazy situation. It says, but David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. We find him talking to himself. 
Uh, in the Psalm, Psalm 42, verse five, he reassures his own heart in the midst of discouragement. He says, why are you cast down, O my soul? Why are you disquieted within me? Hope in God, for I shall yet praise him for the help of his countenance. You see, there are times where we can look at our lives and yes, we see how our lives has changed. We know we aren't where we used to be, but when we look at the bar that Jesus set and we look at our own shortcomings, we know we're not where we want to be. And in that can be a temptation to allow our heart to condemn us. And this is something that Satan will often come and capitalize on and seek to kick us when we are down because he's the accuser of the brethren. But verse 20, we have the good news. Verse 20 says, for if our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart and knows all things. See, John assures us that God is greater than our conscience, greater than our hearts, and we are not to base our relationship with him based on feelings, but by faith. By faith that in the fact that God says, I've begun a good work in you, and God says, I will complete that good work. I love how Spurgeon puts it. He says, sometimes our heart condemns us, but in doing so, it gives a wrong verdict. And then we have the satisfaction of being able to take the case into a higher court, for God is greater than our heart and knoweth all things. I love that, the higher court. You see, sometimes our, our heart can condemn. It means that, that our heart alone, apart from God's word, it says guilty, because we see how Jesus loves and we look at our own life and it's like, oh, I'm not even close. Listen, but in that, we ought not to allow our heart to condemn us, but go to the word of God. Go, I love this, to the higher courts. See, oftentimes, church, we give too much weight to our thoughts and not enough to the word of God. Romans 8.1 says this, There is now, therefore, now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. You see, when our heart declares us guilty, God's word holds more weight than our inner thoughts. And I don't know who maybe needs to hear that where you've been condemning yourself, but you are his. You know you are his because you, you see who you used to be and you've seen God's transformation and work in your life and you're not yet perfected, but he's not done with you. And God would say, take that to the higher court. You're allowing too much weight for your thoughts. Martin Luther said, conscience is one drop, but the reconciled God is a sea of comfort. We must go to the word. Conscience by itself is not an accurate measurement. And you know this, I know this, our feelings, our thoughts are up and down, but God's word is stable. And we need to go to his word because Romans 10, 17 says, so then faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. This is where we need to memorize Romans 8.1. We need to go to these scriptures. So in those moments of discouragement and condemnation, listen, that's not gonna push us closer to God. That's gonna bring us further. You know the difference between conviction and condemnation? Condemnation does not come from God. He, he sends us his Holy Spirit in a conviction. Conviction pushes you closer to the Lord. Condemnation brings you down. And so in verse 21 we find that this heart assurance granted to us by the higher court of God makes way for a great confidence in our relationship with him. 
It says, beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence toward God. That is boldness. And oh, believer, this confidence is something to experience, but can only come as we live out our faith and as we rest upon the God who knows all things. In the previous chapter, 1 John 2, 28, we find this word confidence. It's something that you also find throughout the letter. He says, now little children abide in him. And when he appears, we may have confidence and not be ashamed before him at his coming. Listen, believer, he wants you to have confidence because it's out of that confidence that you're gonna be able to truly love other people. Sometimes we're so focused in on our own, am I saved, am I not? Listen, trust in Christ and love others. And, and, and trust that when God says, I got you, he's got you, and it's time to begin to live for him, that when he comes, we might not be ashamed. And well, before our last point, I wanna share with you 1 John 4, verse 16 through 17. In the following chapter, so before chapter uh, three, you have that verse in the second. And then again, he uses this word, but he uses the word boldness instead of confidence. It's the same word translators translate it to boldness. But the Bible says this, love has been perfected among us in this. How do we know if God's love has been matured in our life? That's the idea of perfected. It's a completeness. Well, that we may have boldness in the day of judgment because as he is, so we are in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love, God's love, casts out fear because fear involves torment, but he who fears has not been made perfect in love. Listen, believer, you might be his today. Well, if you're a believer, you are his, but there might be some fear. There might be some shame. And this is where we have to go back to the infinite love of God. We must go to the cross and allow his love to bring us to full maturity. Amen? Third and finally, we find the obedience of love. Verses 22 through 24, and this kind of all comes to a culmination regarding confidence and love. And now he adds in this idea of commandments and obedience. He's gonna talk about the Holy Spirit. It's a lot here, but it all comes together. You see, it is within this assured, confident love that serves as the greatest ground for our obedience to grow. See, love and obedience, they go hand in hand. God loves us by giving his son Jesus, and we love him by doing what he says, right? That's God's love language. It's obedience. John 14, 15 says, if you love me, keep my commandments. That's a pretty simple concept. We understand what it's like to receive God's love, but how do we display God lo uh, love back towards God? Do what he says. And here in verse 22, John continues on with this assurance, this confidence that we can have in him in regard to prayer and what we ask of him as we seek to obey and please him. Notice verse 22, we have an amazing statement. Whatever we ask, we receive from him. It's pretty awesome. It's an amazing promise. Jesus said, ask, seek, and knock, and it will be given, found, and opened to you. The problem oftentimes in regards to our misunderstanding of prayer is we never read it in its context. We have verses like this and we're like, all right, God, whatever we ask, you told me, I get it. See, God's not a genie. He's our father. And when Jesus says, ask, seek, and knock, right after that, he talks about the parent-child relationship, that he's our father. And so before we get too crazy, 
read the qualifier. Look at verse 22. You have the statement, but then you have the qualifier. Because we keep his commandments and do those things that are pleasing in his sight. The door that opens answered prayer is not a life of perfection, but a life that is aimed to please him. You know, there are prayers that God doesn't hear. The Bible says that God does not hear the prayer of the person who regards sin in their heart. God says that it's sin that hides his face from us. But on the contrary, a life of obedience, not perfection, but obedience, gives us confidence to come to him. 1 John 5, 14 through 15, he'll address this in the last chapter of this letter. He says, now this is the confidence, same word that you found in verse 21. This confidence we have in him, what is it? That if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have the petitions that we have asked of him. The one whose aim is to please the Lord will seek to pray prayers that line up with the will of God because they have come to know that his way is the best way. Oftentimes we have this misconception of prayer that it's about getting our will done and the Bible says, no, it is about getting God's will done in us. It is about aligning ourselves. You see, to pray according to Jesus' name, we say that in Jesus' name, amen. And we pray selfish prayers and then we say, in Jesus' name, amen. When in Jesus' name is to say, according to your will. Really, oftentimes we should insert our own name. And I'm talking to myself, I'm preaching to myself today, okay? I should, there's times where I pray a prayer and I should really be saying, in Joel's name, amen. Now there's no power in that and that's empty and God doesn't hear it and I thank, thank him that he doesn't. But to pray in Jesus' name is to say, God, I want what you want. In Jesus' name is not a magic formula to slap on the end of a prayer and God has to do it. It is to say, I want my prayer to be aligned with your will. John 14, 13 and 14. He says, whatever you ask in my name, we should do that. And he says, that I will do and that the Father may be glorified in the Son. Notice the purpose of prayer. It's that God may get the glory. The purpose of prayer is not to get our will done, but his will done because that's where God gets the glory. John 15, seven gives us a solution on how do we pray prayers like that then? He says, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, you will ask what you desire and it shall be done for you. I love this. This is the great work of God in us. Listen, church, when we get God's word and we get it in us, our prayers are gonna change. Our desires are gonna change. And then when we pray, it's gonna be what's in us is gonna come out. It's gonna be the word. And that's how we find the will of God. You find the will of God for your life in the word of God. And when you come out through prayer, God says, I hear it and I'm working and I'm moving. Warren Wiersbe says, when our delight is in the love of God, our desire will be in the will of God. See, I don't think we need to be careful with what we pray for. You ever heard that before? Someone prays for patience. Oh, brother, be careful for that one because God's gonna put you in a place where you have to display patience. If we pray the word of God, according to the will of God, we can have absolute confidence that whatever he gives us is exactly what we need. There is no prayer that we should be afraid of. 
One of Augustine's famous quotes, right, is to love God and live how you please. Another way to say something similar would be to love God and pray for anything. Because to the person, if you today, if you're sitting here and you've experienced the inner transformation of the Holy Spirit by the word of God, you get this. Because you've seen how your prayers have changed. Can I get an amen? You see how when you first came to Christ, your prayers were about you. And now they've just begun to change. You're like, sometimes you just pray and you're like, God, just, I just need you. And, and God, you, you just do what you want and get me in line. And you begin to realize it, it's, it's him and it's God's desires that begin to form with yours where you look and you're like, I used to want that and I don't want that anymore. And now I want this and I never wanted that before. It's God's work. And so now your prayers have effect. Your prayers have power. That's why James 5.16 says, it's the effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man that avails much. Why? Because they want what is right, right in the eyes of God. So then what is God's desire? What pleases him? Well, look at verse 23. We don't have to guess. What's his number one commandment? And this is his commandment, that we should believe on the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another as he gave commandment. He like even clarifies, this is what God wants. Now notice that John uses the word commandment as something singular, yet goes on to express it in a plurality. Believe and love. Faith and love. Those two things are actually inseparable realities. Faith and love go together. This is the Christian life. Galatians 5, 6 says, For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision avails anything. It don't matter. But faith working through love. There is an essential union between faith and love. As you, as you draw near to Jesus in faith, he is going to begin working through you in love. And then John ends this section on love with verse 24. He says, now he who keeps his commandments abides in him and he in him. And by this we know that he abides in us by the spirit whom he has given us. See, the way that we stay connected, how do we abide in Christ? It's by keeping his commandments. We abide by obedience and then his spirit abides in us. I want you to notice, church, that this is the third statement where he says, by this you know. Okay, so look back at verse 16. He says, by this you know. Then in verse 19, he says, by this, he says a different version, by this we know. Then again, now in verse 24, he ends it. By this we know that he abides in us. It's the Holy Spirit in you. And this is what it's all about. This is the only way to put love into action is having the Holy Spirit in you. Romans 5, 5 says, Now hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who is given to us. What an amazing verse. Aren't you so glad that love doesn't, uh, that hope doesn't disappoint? All that we've put in Christ, all the hope of, of heaven and eternal life, the fact that what we do will mean something in eternity, it's not going to disappoint. How do we know that? How do we know all this is for real? Because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit. That's the greatest testament that God loves us. 
is not only Christ on the cross, but it's the spirit within us. The Bible says his spirit bears witness with our spirit. Like what we were learning on Sundays with with Pastor Jack, that our spirit bears witness that we are his. You see, this love isn't something that we need to work up. It's rather given to us and flows through us as we abide in Christ in obedience. Our focus must be on our connection to Christ. And through that connection, God will supernaturally produce the fruit of the spirit of love in our lives. I believe Paul was very intentional with his language in Galatians 5.22 when he said the fruit of the spirit. It's connecting. Listen, you cannot manufacture fruit. You can't, you can't go to a warehouse and ask them to manufacture fruit. It's something that has to grow. And God says, when you walk in the spirit, when you're connected with me, you, it's not that we don't have a responsibility. We've talked about a responsibility. But the first step, the key, is to be connected to Christ and everything else will follow. Everything else. Jesus said this, last verse to give you, I know I've given you like 30 verses, but Jesus said this of the future believer after they received the Holy Spirit. I find this fascinating. John 7, verses 37 through 39, describes this moment during Jesus' ministry where he refers to the one who will have the Holy Spirit. And uh, I'm claiming that one. That includes you and I, all right? And he says this, and this is the way of now application as we end. On the last day, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out saying, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. But this he spoke concerning the spirit whom those believing in him would receive. For the Holy Spirit was not yet given because Jesus was not yet glorified. Friends, I have good news for you today. Jesus is glorified. He died. He was buried. He rose again and was glorified, he ascended to the Father, and that's still where he is to this day, which means his Holy Spirit has been given. And if you have believed in Christ as Savior, the Holy Spirit has been put into your hearts, and what the Holy Spirit does, it's not intended to stay, but to make you a vessel of his love, that rivers of living water, you can almost see the picture That God fills us up with his love, not so we can be these containers with a closed cap, but that we would be conduits, vessels for his love. May we not shut our hearts to the needs that he put in front of us. Today, I believe according to the Bible, there are prepared good works for you and I to walk in. And you and I, We'll see certain things today, tomorrow, this week. There'll be needs. And you and I are called to meet them. You and I are called to lay our lives down, not because the person is worthy of our love. I love the fact that you can love someone you don't like. In fact, that's typically the positions that God puts us in. And we don't love them because they're worthy of it. 
because you and I were not worthy when Christ died for us, but he did it anyway. And that's the motivation. That's why we do what we do. Even when we could come up with all the excuses of why we shouldn't love that person, why we shouldn't put it into action. Not just say, be warm, be filled, but get down and sometimes get dirty. God desires for you and I that we would be settled and established in his love. That we might have that assurance and confidence before him. And so when our heart condemns us, go to the higher court of his word and allow him to speak over you. Because listen, church, God is greater than our hearts and knows all things. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that before service is, before the teaching today, that you were already preparing us with that announcement. You already gave us a practical way to love. Whether it's that one or whether you would lead us to give in that way or whether there are other smaller things or bigger things. God, we know that this commandment to love one another apart from you is impossible. Apart from you, we can do nothing. But Lord, we know that the Holy Spirit has been given to us. The love of God has been poured out into our hearts. And we ask that you would make our lives those rivers of living water. Make us vessels of your love. Would we not shut up our heart to the needs that you would put in front of us? Lord, would our love move off the shelf of theory, God, and get practical and get real. God, we thank you for your love because, Lord, we know it's only by the cross of Christ that we can understand what love even is. And, God, would it be that which compels us to give up our seat, to give up the parking spot, to stop for the man on the road. And whatever else it may be, Lord, we ask that you would help us to accomplish these things, not in our own strength. We know it's not by might, it's not by power, it's by your spirit that we will live for you. God, we know that at the end of 1 Corinthians 13, You say that we're supposed to abide in faith, hope, and love, but the greatest is love. That's because one day, God, we know that faith is no longer gonna be needed because we're gonna see you face to face. We're no longer gonna walk by faith. We're gonna walk by sight. One day, we're not gonna need hope because what we've hoped for will have been realized. But love is that which will go on into eternity. And so, God, would we be able to comprehend the fullness of your love, that your love might produce fruit in our life that would be used for eternity. We love you, God, and pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Church, you can go ahead and stand. We're going to close with a song of worship.